morning, I invite you to turn with me, if you would, to the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 29. Uh, we are continuing our series, probably concluding our series um, on exploring our identity in Christ. And uh, like I've mentioned, we are going to be starting uh, a series through the book of Romans, and that'll be coming up shortly. And so this uh, is uh, uh, possibly the conclusion to the series uh, on exploring our identity in Christ. I never, never give any guarantee. You never know how the Spirit's going to lead. Um, so I wanted to let you know, too, that uh, next Sunday I will be gone. Joe DeHaan is going to be preaching. Um, uh, so it's uh, Lori and I's 20-year anniversary celebration. So we are going to be uh, in Door County. Uh, we're leaving um, tomorrow. And so uh, Joe will be filling in uh, next Sunday. And then sometime after that, we'll begin our series through the book of Romans. So somebody had asked me to do a, a message on covenant, and I had thought, well, I could, I could t- you know, tie that into our Identity in Christ series, and so that's what I am doing this morning. But it's been a little bit of a journey this past week uh, getting here. I uh, began with sort of a, what is, I would call a, a biblical theology message on, on covenant, looking at all the various covenants and how they come together and flow together into Christ, and, and then I... I abandoned that because it read much more like a theological paper, and, uh, and I felt led to go in a little different direction, and so that brought me to Deuteronomy chapter 29, and, and really kind of focusing on just the mysterious nature of the covenant and how that ties into our identity in Christ. And so that's what we're doing this morning. It's a text I've preached before, um, so I, uh, but it's not the same sermon. Uh, but a text I preached a, a number of years ago. And what I'm doing this morning is really not an expository sermon, uh, which, as you know, is my preference. I always like to do expository sermons. This is more the text is sort of a launching pad for a message on the, on the, the nature of the covenant. And so that's where we're headed this morning, Deuteronomy 29, verses 9 through 15. I invite you to bow, if you would, as we ask for the Spirit's anointing on His Word this morning. Lord God, as we turn our attention to your word this morning, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and give us hearts to receive, O Lord, your word for us this morning. I pray, O Lord, that you would draw us into a deeper wonder over the mystery of the covenant and a deeper gratitude for what you have done for us in Christ as our covenant God to make us your covenant people. O Lord, do this work in us that it may bear fruit for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you are able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Deuteronomy 29, verses 9 through 15. This is not the first uh, time that God has made a covenant with His people. This is a covenant renewal, so there's been covenants before this already, and this is, uh, you know, in the middle of that covenant-making history between God and His people, so it's a renewal of the covenant that God gives through Moses to the people of Israel as they're on the verge of entering into the promised land. Moses says to the people, Starting in verse 9, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in everything you do. 
All of you are standing today in the presence of the Lord your God, your leaders and chief men, your elders and officials, and all the other men of Israel, together with your children and your wives and the foreigners living in your camps who chop your wood and carry your water. You are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you this day as his people, that he may be your God as he promised you and as he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am making this covenant with its oath, not only with you who are standing here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God, but also with those who are not here today. You may be seated. To speak on the topic of covenant feels a little bit like like speaking on the topic of air. It is something so essential and foundational, something that that permeates really the the whole of the biblical story, and and yet it's hard to describe because it's, it's, it's invisible and it's intangible. It's one of those biblical themes that is shrouded in mystery. But as we'll see this morning, it's a mystery that finds its deepest meaning in Christ. So in Deuteronomy chapter 29, the people of Israel are gathered on the plains of Moab, uh, which is east of the Jordan River, on the verge of entering into the promised land. And there Moses speaks to them. And in fact, really the the book of Deuteronomy is is like a, a series of sermons that Moses gives before he dies. So he's uh, near the end of his life. The people have been weathered by years of wandering through the wilderness. They've been given the the law of God, and they've promised to walk in obedience to it. And now in Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses reminds them what kind of relationship they have with God. Because if they're going to enter into the land that God has promised to give them, if they're going to be established as his people in this land of promise, they have to know who they are. They have to know what it means to be the people of God in relationship with him. And so Moses tells them in verse 12, you are standing here in order to enter into a covenant with the Lord your God, a covenant the Lord is making with you this day and sealing with an oath to confirm you as his people. And so the kind of relationship that they have with God and the kind of relationship that that we have with God is a covenant relationship. And that word covenant is a word that we seem to use often, and, but don't always necessarily have it pinpointed exactly what it means. And so in the, in the most basic sense, covenant is the principal expression of the relationship of commitment between God and his people. It is a relational term. It's not, it sets it apart from a contract, which is more just terms and obligations, promises and commitments. Covenant has that as well, but it has this relational aspect. In the words of Legan Duncan, a divine covenant is a God-initiated, binding, living relationship with blessings and obligations. Graham Goldsworthy defines covenant in relation to the kingdom of God. And he says, a covenant is is the promises that God makes to his chosen people based on God's gracious purpose to have a people in his kingdom forever. 
And so covenant is sort of the, the vehicle through which God carries forward his redemption plan, his redemption story. The vehicle through which he has a, a people in his kingdom forever. But the more we look at this covenant relationship between God and his people, the, the more we, we begin to see that it is shrouded in mystery. Because what we see is that God's covenant relationship with his people typically comes with terms or conditions. Not always. There are some covenants that God makes that are unconditional, that God just says, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to do this for you. No strings attached, no matter what. But most of the covenants that God makes with people come with these terms and conditions. Moses says in verse 9, carefully follow the terms of this covenant so that you may prosper in all that you do. And in fact, most of the book of Deuteronomy is Moses laying out the terms and conditions of the covenant. He tells the people that there will be blessings if they meet these terms and conditions, and there will be curses if they don't. In fact, Moses says in verse 19, if someone hears the words of this covenant and they invoke a blessing on themselves, thinking I'll be safe even though I persist in going my own way. In other words, I can just kind of do what I want to do. It's not going to harm me. Everything's going to be okay. I'm still, you know, part of the covenant family of God and so I can, I'm safe. Just do what I want. Moses says, if you do that, you'll bring disaster on the land. And then in verse 20, he says, The Lord will never be willing to forgive him. His wrath and zeal will burn against him. All the curses written in this book will fall on him. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. You do not enter into a covenant with the living God lightly. If you do not follow the conditions of the covenant, Moses says, you bring upon yourself the curses for disobedience. And when you read the curses, what those curses are in Deuteronomy chapter 28, you see what a horrifying thing it is to be under the curse of God. Because it is really, in essence, it is God pulling back his hand from your life so that you live in the utter darkness and desolation of his absence. God says, puts it this way in Deuteronomy 28, he says, so this is just one expression of the curses of covenant breaking. He says, at midday you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. And it goes on and on and on with all these, these covenant curses one after another. God goes on to say, you will build houses but not live in them. You will plant vineyards but not eat their fruits. You will wear out your eyes watching for your children who will never return to you. You'll live as exiles to an enemy nation where you'll have an anxious mind and eyes weary with longing and a despairing heart. You'll live in constant dread, never sure of your life. You'll offer yourselves as slaves, God says, but no one will buy you. And the tension the tension that's raised in this reality of the covenant is that it just doesn't seem to jive with the God that we know and, and sing about as a God of grace. 
In fact, the Bible seems at times to send sort of contradictory messages when it comes to covenant. Sometimes God says to his people, I will, I will bless you no matter what. And other times he says, I will bless you only if you meet these terms and conditions. And it is this, this seeming contradiction, this, this, this tension that is the mystery of the covenant. And it really forms the, the major plot line of the entire Bible because what we see throughout the whole biblical story is that God's people persistently fail to keep their end of the covenant. That is, in a nutshell, what, what the, you know, re redemption history looks like from the human perspective. It is persistent covenant breaking, failure to keep the terms of the covenant. There's a museum in Croatia called the Museum of Broken Relationships. Uh, it, is, it, was, it actually became so popular in Croatia that I think one is, was started in, in Los Angeles as well, but I don't think that one is in existence anymore. But the museum puts on display items that, re that represent broken relationships. So there are pictures of former, cu former uh, couples with written explanations of why they're no longer together. And what, what happened to make their relationship, you know, fall apart. There are angry letters written to former lovers. There's an axe in the museum that was used by, by someone to hack apart the furniture of an ex-lover. There's a, a lawn, one of those garden gnomes, a, a painted garden gnome that's got the head all crushed in because a, an angry woman hurled it at the car of her departing husband as he was going away. So the whole museum is filled with these artifacts, these items, these things that, that, that uh, represent broken relationships. And each one has its own story of a relationship gone wrong. When you read the history of God's people throughout the biblical story, it kind of reads like something that belongs in the museum of broken relationships. Because God, again and again, God just keeps making covenants with his people and they keep on breaking them. They are persistently, are, are persistently covenant-breaking people who forsake their covenant-keeping God. As God said through the prophet Jeremiah, from the time that I brought your ancestors up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again saying, obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their own evil hearts. And so I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I had commanded them to follow, but that they did not keep. Because you see, if God just lets these covenant failures slide, if he sort of just sort of, you know, shrugs it off and says, well, I'll just kind of, you know, brush it under the rug, pretend that didn't exist, it compromises his holiness. And he cannot, as by, by very nature being a holy God, he cannot compromise his holiness. But if he forsakes his people and just sort of gives up on them and says, man, man these covenant-breaking people, I, I'm done with them, I'm through with them, I'll never have anything to do with them again. Well, then it forsakes or compromises his faithfulness. And again, it is central to his nature to be a faithful God. Michael Wilcock sums up the dilemma this way. He says, it's almost as if God says, I have sworn to bless you, and I have sworn not to bless a disobedient people. So what is this you have done to me? And by what 
fearful means do you think I am to solve this situation? You see, this is the bind, isn't it? This is the tension. This is the mystery of the covenant. And the way that, that most people resolve the mystery in, in practice is by sliding into one of two errors. The first error is to allow the love of God to over overshadow his demands for obedience. We say, yeah, you know, we know that we should do good, that we should be good people and all that. We know that we should obey the Ten Commandments and we know all that. But, but in the end, God's love wins and he's going to accept everybody and love everybody no matter what. The second error is to allow the love or is to allow the law of God to overshadow his gracious love. And so we say, yeah, we, we, we know that God is a loving God, but in the end, what really matters, what really counts is if we're good. We have to be good enough. We have to do the right things or God won't accept us. The first error leads to relativism. The second error leads to moralism. The first error leaves you sort of hollow and empty without, without any reason ever to strive for holiness. The second error leaves you weighed down with a burden of guilt that you are not equipped to carry. Both are absolutely miserable ways to live. And both miss the mark of the biblical balance. But as the biblical story unfolds, we see that this mystery of the covenant is resolved in Christ. We find a clue to this resolution in God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. God said to Abraham, and let me just set the stage for you a little bit. So this is, uh, you know, God has already made a covenant with Abraham back in, in Genesis 12. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and you'll be a blessing to the nations around you. And in order for that to happen, in order for him to be a great nation with, with many offspring and with, you know, as, as numerous as the stars in the sky, it has to happen. It has to begin with what? A baby. And so Abraham waits and he waits and he waits and he waits and a baby doesn't come and a baby doesn't come and a baby doesn't come. And God appears to him in Genesis 15 to reaffirm that promise, that covenant with him. And God said to Abraham, Look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, so shall your offspring be. And then God promised to give him the land of Canaan. And so God promised in Genesis, in Genesis 15 to, to bless Abraham and his descendants with a land. And Abraham said, Lord, how can I know that you will bless me this way? And God told Abraham in response to that question to kill some animals and to cut them into pieces and then to arrange the pieces into, into two rows to make sort of an aisle or a walkway in between them. And we may hear that and think, what in the world is God doing? Because it seems like really odd instructions. But it wasn't to Abraham. He knew exactly what God was doing. Because you see, in, in those days, this was a, a, a very common covenant ceremony. When a lord or a king wanted to make a covenant with a lesser servant or a vassal, this is how it happened. 
animals were killed and they were cut into pieces and then the pieces were arranged to make sort of a walkway in between and then the servant would take an oath of loyalty to the Lord or king and he took that oath as he walked between the pieces of that slaughtered animal, the, the hacked up pieces of the animal on either side of him. He took the oath as he walked between them. And by doing so, he was acting out the curse of the covenant. He was saying, in effect, may it be to me as it was to these animals if I violate the demands of this covenant. May I be cut into pieces if I break this promise. Imagine for a moment what a solemn ceremony that must have been. I mean, in our age of, of Elvis-themed weddings uh, performed by internet-ordained ministers, we, we, we have largely lost the sense of gravity in making promises. But here in Genesis 15, there's gravity. For in between the heaps of torn flesh and the trickles of blood pooling onto the ground, you walk and you say, so may it be to me if I break this covenant. Try doing that in a wedding sometime. <laughs> Have the white bride's bridal gown all splattered with blood? Maybe not. So Abraham does what God says. He, he arranges the pieces, and then he waits, expecting God to, uh, you know, to call him to walk through the pieces, to pledge his loyalty to God and the covenant. But the command never came. Birds of prey came down and started feeding on the carcasses, and Abraham had to drive them away, and still there was no command from God. And the sun began to set, and Abraham fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came down, the darkness of judgment. And we read in verse 17, that when the sun had set, and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Well, what is this? This is a manifestation of God himself. This is God himself appearing in the form of a blazing torch as he would later on at Mount Sinai. And so, so God himself, this, this is the amazing thing, that God himself passed between the pieces. And this was, this was unheard of. A king or a lord would never be the one to pass through the pieces. So this is God coming down to Abraham and saying, not only do I promise to bless you, but I will be torn to pieces if I don't bless you. And this, this, if, if this was all there was to the promise of God, this in itself would be shocking enough because again, kings don't do that. But on top of that, Abraham himself is never called to walk through the pieces. So God made the promise for both of them. And he was taking on the curse of the covenant for both of them. And so in effect, God was saying this, not only will I be torn to pieces if I don't keep my promise, but I will be torn to pieces if you don't. If we wonder about the deep mystery of the covenant. If we wonder what a love relationship with God really looks like, if we wonder, if we want to know how, how, how far the covenant embrace of God will really reach, 
we find the answer here in Genesis 15. In the blazing torch of the living God who came down to pass through the pieces, we see a God who says to Abraham and to us, I will bless you no matter what, even if it means that my immortality must become mortal, even if it means that my glory must be drowned in darkness, and even if it means that I have to be torn to pieces. And as we know, we who stand on this side of the cross, he was. What was foreshadowed in Genesis 15 became a reality centuries later when darkness descended on Calvary. And in the midst of the darkness, there was God in the person of Jesus Christ being what? Torn to pieces. The nails tore into his hands and his feet. The crown of thorns tore into his head. The sword tore, tore open his side. What we see at the cross is God taking upon himself the covenant curse. Paul summed it up so well in Galatians 3, verse 13, when he said, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And friends, do you see? Do, do you see what this means? The, the mystery of the covenant is resolved in Christ. The, the seemingly irresolvable tension between the love of God and, and the demand for obedience is resolved at the cross. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did ever such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? On the cross, Jesus fulfilled the conditions of the covenant so that God could love us unconditionally. With his perfect life, he met the demands of the covenant and earned the blessing and with his sacrificial death, he fulfilled the curse of the covenant and took upon himself the punishment we deserved. And so, in Christ, we are God's covenant people. We are his treasured possession. We are those for whom he walked through the pieces. We are the people belonging to God purchased by the torn flesh of his son, set free from the curse of our covenant-breaking, our persistent again and again, over and over, covenant-breaking sins and failures. There's a story about a young girl, young slave girl at a slave auction, and a kind man purchased her freedom, and as they left the auction, the man turned to the girl and said, said, you're free. And what a stunning concept this reality of freedom was to this, to this girl. She couldn't comprehend what that really meant, and she said, you, you mean I'm free to do whatever I want, and I'm free to go wherever I want to go? And the kind man smiled and said, yeah, that's right. You can do whatever you want to do. And you can go wherever you want to go because I purchased your freedom. And the girl thought for a moment and then she said, then I will go with you. And so it is with us when we grasp the mystery of the covenant. God 
pursued us in love. He gave us his son. He purchased our freedom. And if our eyes are opened to see it, then in amazement and wonder, we abandon ourselves to him. There's, I mean, do you want to be with anybody else? Is there anywhere else that you could go that would be as satisfying as that, as, as the one who did that for you? And so we abandon ourselves to him. We follow him. We go wholeheartedly with the one who set us free. Let's bow together. Lord God, we praise you this morning for the mystery of the covenant. Lord, what a deep and a profound reality it is to be your covenant people purchased for you through the precious blood of Christ who gave himself for us, who took upon himself all of the curses for our covenant unfaithfulness and who earned for us all the blessings of perfectly meeting the covenant demands. Lord, in this time of silent prayer and response, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would hear our prayers of gratitude and our prayers of commitment for this one who has made us the covenant people of God. It is in Christ alone that we are made to be your covenant people. It is in Christ alone that sin's curse has lost its grip on us. It is in Christ alone that we can say, you are our God and we are your people. It is in Christ alone that we live in the blessed hope and assurance of being a people in your kingdom forever. And so our devotion, our affection, our commitment, our loyalty, our allegiance, our worship goes to Christ alone in whose name we pray, amen.